and welcome to the Media Law Podcast with me, Colette Allen. This episode is being recorded in the seventh week of the UK lockdown, and I am joined by both Tom and Paul to discuss all the latest COVID and non-COVID related media law. We'll be addressing the new NHS contact tracing app, launched in the Isle of Wight today, and the legal intervention about possible privacy and data protection infringements. We'll also be talking about the Labour Party leaks, doctored pictures in the tabloids and the new favourite sport of naming and shaming celebrities who are not adhering to social distancing measures, and of course, Harry and Meghan. But first, I want to pick up on something that Tom spoke about in the last episode that went out with Peter and Holly, um, where they all sounded quite enthused that social media companies are taking responsibility for misinformation online and actively redirecting users to WHO websites and national health organisations. I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'm not sure I entirely agree with the enthusiastic approach from the last last podcast. Um, The UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression has stressed the legal protection of intermediaries for third-party content comes from the fact that private entities are not best placed to make the determination of whether a particular content is illegal which requires a careful balancing of competing interests and consideration of possible defences. More to the point, the use of algorithms means that there is a distinct lack of transparency in the decision-making process for complex freedom of expression issues. So my question is, when social media companies take responsibility, are we in fact giving them responsibility traditionally held by the law? Or is this the case that holding intermediaries liable makes the imposition of remedies possible and thus asserting a legal presence in an otherwise fairly unregulated online environment? I think that's a really good question, Colette. Um, I have to say that I tend to agree with you. I think um, the danger is that we create the conditions for uh, censorship online such that um, intermediaries feel the pressure to uh, suppress information, even information that looks uh, suspect to them, but may very well be useful um, or otherwise non-harmful. For example, um, herbal remedies, that type of thing for the treatment of COVID, uh, a uh, responsible inverted commas intermediary might think that that kind of talk um is irresponsible and therefore seek to um, shut it down. And the problem with a sensorial uh, environment like that is that the sensor will tend to suppress more than is necessary to try and cover their own back. So yes, I agree, that's a dangerous climate for us to encourage. I tend to take a less stringent view of these things, I guess. we live in a world in which the law is not going to respond by prescribing particular pieces of information or proscribing others. Um, the law is a blunt instrument, and the platforms upon which these matters appear are always going to be the primary gatekeepers of whether stuff gets through. Now, we've never had a great problem in this country with the ideas that publishers get to decide, that is, the publishing platforms get to decide the content of the material that appears on their platform, whether you're talking about publishers of hardback books or not. 
um, or online social media platforms. It, it doesn't really matter. You've got the same kind of the same kind of setup. Um, there's no legal right to have a platform, to have a soapbox upon which to say whatever it is you want to say. Um, and so private platforms can regulate whatever content they like on the platform. The suggestion that we made in the, in the podcast was that one way in which they could usefully help at this point of the COVID crisis is to limit the amount of material that is or appears to be, and yes, there might be some defensive practice there, misinformation. Paul gives the example of herbal remedies. Herbal remedies might sound innocuous, but if you have enough people on social media reading a piece about herbal remedies, thinking to themselves this would be a good and effective treatment for COVID-19, and then going out and snorting some jasmine in the back garden or whatever, the problem comes when they then think, you know what, I've taken the herbal remedy and I'm, I'm cured. I'm free of this disease, and they go out and mingle in the community, because as far as they're concerned, they're not a problem anymore. Now, is that a kind of overblown example? Probably. Is it a risk? Yes. Would we prefer, in the context of a global pandemic that has to date killed hundreds of thousands of people, a little bit of defensive practice when it comes to what Facebook allows on its platform. For my part, I'd be all right with that for a few months, but that's just me. Yeah, I think the difficulty there is is the um, caveat you ended added at the end. A few months. I mean, the, the unfortunate aspect of COVID is that this isn't going to be around for just a few months. We're talking more like something like a year, possibly a couple of years. And so the difficulty is that we start to get into routines, into practices where we assume that there are good reasons for these things. And I think you're right, Tom, there are good reasons now, but those good reasons don't get re-challenged later on or don't get challenged at all. And we end up in a situation uh, that H.G. Wells described in The Time Machine with the uh, Morlocks who take advantage of the innocent creatures whose name I've completely forgotten, um, who run away to the shelter uh, because that's the thing that they've always done and they fall prey to the Morlocks. I, I take the point that this may well not last for just a few months and you know, you're at the beginning of a potentially slippery slope. But... I don't think that that addresses the basic fact that these are private platforms entitled to regulate the content upon them in whichever way appears them to them to be best. Now, at the moment, it looks like on public interest grounds, social media platforms are going to regulate supposed misinformation on COVID-19. I don't actually think that that is really explicable on public interest grounds. It's it's uh, uh, it's a commercial decision, a commercial decision to be seen to be on the right side of what's going on here. But what happens when the commercial decision doesn't necessarily doesn't have such a straightforward right side? 
guess that's the problem with always leaving it up to these private platforms that have such a huge reach to to make the decisions themselves. Point taken. But if the argument that what we really need to do is step back, not overly regulate, have the private companies simply allowing speech and then it finds its way to either be accepted or dismissed by people in a marketplace of ideas, then that is itself a kind of free market argument. And I think there's an incoherence between saying free market, good for speech, but free market considerations not good when it comes to platforms deciding whether to have the speech on it on commercial grounds. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it, it, you can have both ways on that. Mm. Either I, you have to commit to the free market or not. I think I think you're right. I, I think you're right, Tom, in, to emphasise the point that uh, as as private entities, uh, these individuals can do what they want, and I totally accept that. Um, my concern is that they. My concern is more of a suspicion about why, as Colette says, this campaign is the one that has uh, triggered them, the one that's made them sort of intervene. Um, There are clear health grounds for doing so, of course, but my fear is that what's sat behind them is the hand of government. And that's the thing that troubles me the most. And giving them the power to suppress information on the basis of it being COVID-19 related could, of course, extend to suppression of any speech that is anti- for example, the lockdown. And so people begin to lose a sense of how many people are actually against the lockdown in its present total absolute form. Um, And we lose a sense of how many people are actually pushing for government to do something to alter the nature of the lockdown. Um, That to me is slightly, is more than slightly problematic because it allows for this sort of authoritarian regime to exist and gain uh, roots. And that's what troubles me. Fascinating to get your thoughts on it more, Um, because I I listened in and I um, wanted to ask follow-up questions, but I think for the sake of time, we will move on to other aspects that need addressing. Today saw the trial launch of the new NHS contact tracing app in the Isle of Wight. The NHS app uses short-range Bluetooth signals to record when people are using a, a, in close proximity for a specific period of time. It then issues automated alerts to those at risk whenever a fellow user records positive for the virus. The alerts will not disclose who has triggered the warning, but will advise contacts to go home and self-isolate. The app's developers have built the system around a centralised platform following discussions with advisors like G- GCHQ's National Cybersecurity Centre. In the centralised model, contacts are represented by an identifier and matched by a central computer. The approach contrasts that being taken by Google and Apple, as well as a similar contract tasting app designed by UCL called BP3T, where matches are performed on a user's mobile where the matches are performed on a user's mobile phone. A legal opinion commissioned by the Open Society Foundation came out today written by barristers from Matrix and Blackstone Chambers that has suggested the proposed centralised system used by the NHS app may not be compatible with privacy and data protection law. A decentralised approach may be more secure because there is no central server that governments can access in what would be an unprecedented step for the UK government's surveillance of the public. 
the legal community has called on the UK government to give a detailed data protection impact assessment before it rolls out the programme across the country in order to best avoid a legal challenge. Um, Tom and Paul, I don't know whether you've read the legal intervention, whether you have any thoughts on it, whether you um, think the decentralised approach is better or centralised, is it's all just, you know, six and a half a dozen. I've had a brief look at the opinion and it raises pretty much all of the points that I would expect it to. Um, a centralized app of this sort is always going to raise more uh, and potentially more serious privacy and data protection questions. And it will particularly arouse the suspicions of those who are naturally suspicious of centralized government and central government having control over personal information. Um, it will be interesting to see what the government's response is uh, and how much information they put out about the way that the app actually functions the extent to which they think it's compatible with existing data protection and human rights laws on the human rights point. I suspect that we're in a situation where if there is a substantial amount of uh, dissent from the legal community, if there's, you know, if we're looking seriously at um, legal claims being brought forward to limit the scope of the app, then this is a classic instance where the government could look at derogating from the European Convention and simply disapplying Article 8 for a little while. We're in the grip of a national, nay, global emergency, um, and they, they could potentially do that. So I, I, I don't think that there are any insurmountable formal legal odds here no matter how troubling we might think that some of the privacy implications of the uh, the app are. Paul? Yeah, I, I suppose it all depends on, on uh, what it is we think they might do with the private information. Um, because privacy is qualified in the way that it is, if uh, they're interfering with it for... Um, public safety, national security purposes. I don't have a problem um, with that, but um, I'd like to know the circumstances in which they propose to end monitoring people um, and how transparent this process is going to be. Will they only monitor people who sign up or will they be monitoring everybody regardless? Well, yeah, that's something that's definitely come out is it's not clear if this is going to be voluntary or mandatory. And if it is mandatory, I mean, can you actually, can can you force people to download an app? What if you don't have a smartphone? Yeah. Well, exactly. And there are an awful lot of people who don't. Um, a substantial number of people, I believe, on the Isle of Wight who don't. But what's interesting about that, I mean, I can see why they've done it. Because in, on the Isle of Wight, you've got a really quite small location with a limited number of people. And you'll be able to see, you, you've basically got a guaranteed situation of people in which individuals are going to come into contact with one another and presumably will come into contact with some of the same people on a regular basis you know we've got a small-ish community there so i can see why they've chosen to test it there rather than in one of our larger cities 
or somewhere where it's easier for people to travel in or outside of their, their, their local environments. I can understand it. Um, but yes, I, the, the question of whether this is voluntary or mandatory, I can't see a way in which they can, in practice, make it, man- make it mandatory. Um, other than, I guess, to persuade the major smartphone manufacturers to push automatic download onto people's phones. Mm. Um, and since the government has already ruled out the decentralized model preferred by Apple and Google, I think it's highly unlikely that those manufacturers would support uh, the government's model in any kind of mandatory sense. So I just don't think it would be enforceable, even if you tried. But they, they might, the government might attempt to legislate to make it mandatory in the hopes that that will simply increase the proportion of people who comply. But that that would be the only plausible aim. And even then, it seems draconian. Do you think, do you think there's any, um, do you think there's any scope in the fact that the intervention has been a bit disproportionate? Because after all, the, the data that's being sent to a centralised server is going to the NHS, which is built on protecting sensitive health data. So I, I also wonder whether everyone's kind of getting their knickers in a twist over nothing. Yep, possibly. We do like to get our knickers in a twist. <laughs> I think it's entirely possible that the privacy implications are being given airtime by people who are really expert in the technology in a way that doesn't really chime with your average user's experience of data usage, personal data usage, because let's face it, a lot of people give up vast amounts of their personal data every day without thinking about it to private companies. I think Paul is absolutely right to say that what we need to see from government is a much clearer sense of how the data will be used, how it will be stored, how it will be protected, and what's going to happen to it when it's no longer needed for this purpose. When is it likely that that the database is going to uh, be uh, deleted? What do they plan to do with it? Um, And, of course, a lot of people, I, I should think, will want some... Uh, guarantees that the data doesn't just end up being pushed into some large database and then used, for example, in uh, a trade negotiation with a major foreign power that's going to involve large amounts of negotiation around healthcare providing, Mm. which is, of course, something that's on the horizon. Would there not be sufficient protections in the right to be forgotten and the kind of laws around that? That's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure it's the answer. We'd we'd need to know more about how the technology works. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say I have a right to be forgotten, but if your data has already been anonymized, could it even practically be located in order to be deleted? Well, yeah, I guess any time will tell with how that one works out. Um, Really quickly, I want to ask about James Cracknell and Dr. Pictures, um, because the tabloids do seem to be loving the attacks on celebrities who 
they don't feel are adhering to social distancing. And James Cracknell did a tweet last week where he showed the actual photo of him and his father and the photo that went up on, I think it was the, the Sun or the Daily Mail, I can't remember which one, um, website, and it had pushed them way closer together. And, I mean, obviously you've got accuracy issues there in that reporting, but apart from that, it, how is this not illegal? There's difficulties in, in uh, pursuing a kind of legal claim uh, on the basis of, for example, um, this would sort of fall between the cracks, I think, of uh, defamation, privacy, uh, even data protection. Um, there's nothing, there's no sort of law that says that uh, the news must provide uh, accurate information. And if they're providing inaccurate information, then it's a question of what harm is caused as a consequence. And it's probably unlikely that you could mount, say, a defamation claim on the basis of this, because I don't think any judge would seriously think there was a significant amount of harm um, to justify it. Uh, What could be done, which is uh, a sort of lesser level of of sort of satisfaction um, for the for the claimant is to complain to uh, Ipso, the press regulator, uh, about the inaccuracy of the photograph, um, because all newspapers, in fact, all the major newspapers are parts, more or less, of um, Ipso, and so they must adhere to Clause 1 of Ipso's uh, Code of Conduct, uh, which says that the press must take care not to publish inaccurate, misleading, or distorted information or images. Um, and so by doctoring the photo in this way, uh, the newspaper would be in breach of that code. Now, in terms of what that leads to, um, Ipso uh, can issue, in the first instance, uh, a sort of public admonishment of this behaviour to alert people to the fact that this is what the newspaper has done. And that can have a kind of vindicatory uh, feel feel to it. Um, but... Uh, Ipso is also empowered ultimately to issue fines for serious or uh, ongoing um, constant breaches of the code. And so this could be one instance that adds to that kind of cumulative effect uh, and could lead to a fine. It's false light privacy. That's really what this is. Yeah, but we don't have false light. But we don't have it. We don't have false light privacy. If this were in the United States, we'd say this is a a, a false light privacy yeah. tort, which is where where a defendant publishes information that places the uh, plaintiff in a false light. Um, we don't have yeah. such a tort here. At least we don't seem to have one on paper. Um, so there is some recent case law that I'm starting to think might be tending very very tentatively in that direction but i don't know maybe i'll go away and write something on it and then come back and talk about it in a few months um one of those things but i'm yeah otherwise broadly in agreement with paul i think there is the potential for something on defamation here but probably not with the james cracknell case if you had someone that looked like they were doing something along these lines but more egregious um then you know perhaps the potential in context for serious reputational harm might arise but at the moment you know i'm i'm sympathetic to paul's view this probably doesn't pass 
the Section 1 threshold in the Defamation Act. Um, yeah, it's more just the principle of it. The fact that they seem to totally get away with changing the meaning of the photo. And obviously, he took crack, James Cracknell took it in good faith, mm. and he was quite funny about it on Twitter, but it just seemed, it seemed quite shocking that that was something that, of course, you can just get away with. But I guess that's that's the tabloid press for you. Um, okay, so moving away from coronavirus-related news um, to the Labour Party leaks. Tom, I know you wanted to talk about this. Yes, I'm interested in this. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a leak of a very lengthy, I mean, 800-odd pages report uh, that had been commissioned by those, uh, by some of the people within the Labour Party, particularly by those, it seems, um, on the left of the party, um, that was designed to form part of the Labour Party's submissions to the EHRC in the investigation of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Now, in the course of this report, um, an awful lot of information is uh, is, is uh, given out, um, including um, transcripts of WhatsApp conversations between senior Labour Party staffers, uh, many of which do not paint those staffers in a terribly flattering light in terms of their conduct. Um, the leaked report, however, was completely unredacted and also, therefore, revealed the identities of certain people who were complainants in anti-Semitism cases that were brought to the party's attention. Now, this has led to um, a number of reports in uh, mainstream media outlets that the Labour Party is facing legal action for breach of privacy um, and breach of data protection laws in respect of the leaking of uh, this report. And I think there are, there's, there's not been an awful lot in terms of detailed information about who these claimants would be, but I can imagine them falling into two brackets. On the one hand, you have the Labour Party staffers who, are, uh, who have uh, seen evidence of alleged wrongdoing on their part come out in the report who will be uh, none too pleased um, at the allegations. And you have the complainants in the anti-Semitism cases whose identities have been revealed, um, which has, it seems, subjected, uh, led to at least some of them being subjected to further anti-Semitic abuse. Um, now, my instinct is uh, that there are pretty clear public interest type defences that could be run in respect of claims brought by the uh, staffers, but um, that there may well be legal difficulties for the Labour Party in respect of any claims brought by the complainants in some of these anti-Semitism cases. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't look good. Um, we wondered, didn't we, whether um, this might be uh, the type of case in which we have an opportunity to revisit what, in fact, the difference is now between a breach of confidence case and uh, a misuse of private information case. It might be that all roads lead to Rome, but... Um, in a in a case like this, I can I can well imagine a judge starting from the position that these are 
complaints, quasi-legal complaints, in which the um, complainant uh, should be afforded some measure of protection to encourage future uh, whistleblowing of this nature um, and not to fear, in addition to everything else a whistleblower fears, uh, the problem of their identity being revealed to the larger public and um, the serious issues that could uh, come from that. So if we sort of thought about it along those lines as a kind of classic breach of confidence case, then we might get to a position where the public interest defence is much narrower um, for this breach of confidence uh, claim as it was um, or seemed to be the case prior to Campbell uh, coming into effect. Yes, I think this is the sort of case where we could potentially get some clarity on the distinction between misuse of private information and breach of confidence. Um, There has been this coming together between the two doctrines um, over the last 20 years. Um, really since the recognition of misuse of private information and that there's a, a lack of clarity that has always been there as to exactly what its relationship is with the older, much older breach of confidence doctrine. Um, and it came to a head in the, uh, uh, in the Google case um, a few years ago in front of Mr. Justice Tugendhat and then later in the Court of Appeal. Um, but Every time that we have an opportunity for more clarity on this point, we also equally have an opportunity for the courts to provide us with no additional clarity and possibly to muddy the waters even further. Um, I would have thought that if what the courts have said on this is right, that, that we have still two distinct causes of action, then these sorts of claims the ones by complainants in anti-Semitism cases would be best pleaded as breaches of confidence. They gave the information to the mm. Labour Party in confidence. The Labour Party has permitted that information yeah. to become public. It's not a privacy claim as such. It's a confidentiality claim. And yeah. if pleaded in that way, and if it gets dealt with in that way, that might give some renewed strength to the breach of confidence doctrine, which otherwise just hasn't had much of an airing in the last oh, decade or so, really. Yeah. But I'm interested in the staffers. The idea that the staffers who are accused of various different types of wrongdoing, and if anyone has followed, I'm not going to repeat the allegations here, but if anyone's seen any of the text from the leaked WhatsApp conversations, some of what is said um, in the in, in, in those conversations is emphatically vile. Um, and if they are true representations of um, what was actually said by these people, and I emphasize, I do not know if that is the case. Um, this is simply the allegations that are in the report. But if they are true representations, I find it very difficult to see how claims from those staffers could possibly succeed because there seems to be, uh, to me, to be clear public interest in discussing 
the behavior of uh, these people and especially their behavior if they have done uh, any of the things that, that they've been accused of. Mm -hmm. yeah. When are the, um, when is, when are the legal claims timed for? How, what's the kind of time frame on this? Don't know. Haven't heard. Um, there were reports about it two or three weeks ago in the newspapers, um, but I haven't seen anything more on it yet in terms of people coming forward and saying that they've issued claims um, or anything like that. I, I imagine it's going to take some time for, um, first of all, the, 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 the potential claimants involved to decide whether they really do want to issue court proceedings then for the pleadings to be uh, drafted. Um, that's going to take a little while because they're going to have to gather a lot of evidence. And then, of course, there'll be a whole bunch of uh, legal extrajudicial wranglings outside of court to see whether these claims are to be defended if they're issued um, or whether they're settled. We'll, we'll have to see. I, this is one of those situations I think we're going to have to wait for a bit more information. Um, just finally, because um, we've yeah gone through a lot, but I'm conscious of time. Uh, Harry and Meghan, I think, need a mention. Yeah. Okay. So this uh, this is uh, refers to the males' uh, quote massive victory end quote uh, over Meghan that has again quote sent her reeling quote or whatever. Um. Yeah, the um, there was an interim hearing on the privacy, data protection, and copyright claim brought by Meghan Markle against Daily Mail and Associated Newspapers, uh, in which the um, defendants asked for certain words to be struck out of the particulars of claim, certain aspects of the particulars of claim uh, that they objected to, in particular this idea of dishonesty on their part, and also of pursuing an agenda. Uh, against Meghan Markle. The net effect was that, of this was that the judge agreed in part um, with what the defendants were saying, um, but in other parts allowed um, for Meghan to re-particularise her claim uh, to make it more apparent why it was that they needed to include this information uh, as part of her three stated claims. So although the tabloids have found this very interesting and think it's some kind of victory, legal or moral for them, um, actually from a legal perspective, it, it really doesn't alter that much. It's, it's actually quite boring. Okay, great. Well, I think we should wrap it up there um, for the sake of times. Um, thank you very much for joining me both. Thank you. Thank you. And as ever, please follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast for all the latest on media law developments. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.